Welcome back to The Buzz, the podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association. I'm your host, Andrew Gilbert, and I'm talking with two distinguished writers, John Murph and James Gavin. This is the second part of a discussion about the rise and fall of Jazz Times, a magazine that was an essential part of the jazz landscape for some five decades. In the introduction to the first part, I said we'd be talking about the demise of Jazz Times. A more accurate way to put it is that we're exploring Jazz Times' demise as a journalistic endeavor. To recap, since the magazine was purchased by the Bebop Channel in February 2023, Jazz Times no longer seems to adhere to normal professional or journalistic standards. They've run press releases masquerading as features, and stories haven't been noticeably edited. In a particularly notorious case, an obituary of legendary saxophonist and composer Wayne Shorter seemed unacquainted with the course of his life and career. Trolling on Twitter seems to have replaced engagement with readers. The New Jazz Times has published racially inflammatory claims about the magazine's past. In his opening statement, new owner Greg Royal described the magazine as, quote, a wankfest of the highest order largely undertaken and overtaken by white people at the expense of cultivating a legacy amongst jazz's primary heirs, past and future Black generations, unquote. Adding injury to insult, the new owners have republished pieces by writers who are still owed money for Jazz Times stories. And a recent email from Greg Royal indicated that there is no plan for paying for work done before the Bebop channel acquired the magazine. Let's get back to the conversation with John Murph and James Gavin. Murph, you were just describing some of the challenges for diversifying jazz journalism, in general jazz journalism, where it's so important. One thing that's fascinating, and I don't think it's really been remarked upon, I think because it's so uncomfortable, is that the New Jazz Times actually published one significant piece in, I believe it was the first issue, may have been the second, I can't remember if it was May or June, but it was a the piece by Steve Coleman, alto saxophonist, M-Bass conceptualist, Steve Coleman, his response to the magazine's coverage a few years earlier about his relationship with saxophonist Maria Grand. And this is a very contentious relationship. There's lawsuits involved, allegations of abuse. Coleman had written a response to Jazz Times coverage. The magazine hadn't published it. And the new Jazz Times basically let him run the entire piece unedited, which wasn't to his favor. It definitely, as we could all, could, could use editing. But there was no editorial discretion in it either. No back and forth, no one to to push back against anything. It's a, it's a, it's a, a difficult issue. And it involves some of you know the most important and high-profile musicians in the music. It's fascinating. That was what the New Jazz Times chose to do rather than, to my mind, sort of shedding possibly light on a situation or creating a forum. It was really, it published a diatribe really that, again, was clearly Coleman feels really aggrieved and, and he might have some reason to, but that was... Uh, ill sign for the the editorial judgment of the new owners. But I'm wondering what you guys thought. Well, you know, I can agree with you 
when you have a sound editorial board that knows journalism, you know the difference between sound journalism and being balanced and knowing how to check facts, fact-checking, ensuring that what is written is ethically sound. And you also know what is more of a opinions piece. And there is some validity to wanting to or needing to publish opinion pieces that one may disagree upon. But even that meets certain standards. And to your point, it not being unedited or vetted may have played to Steve Coleman's disadvantage than advantage. Because unfortunately, what he said is out there and is published. And if you had a very caring editorial staff, particularly if you're saying that you're really caring about black people, you would say, hey, this is not a good look for you. (laughs) You really, really care about black people more so than you care about what it looks to have a black publication. This current leadership is not professional. I believe in excellence. I've written hundreds of articles in my life for a lot of prestigious places, and I have worked with some extraordinarily good editors from whom I've learned a lot. I've worked with the other kind, too. David Kelly at the New York Times Book Review, one of my favorites. I learned so much from him in his soft-spoken, gentle way, writing pieces for the book review. And I've devoted my life, I'm speaking personally now, I've devoted my life to trying to get really good at what I do. It's a wonderful feeling to be in the hands of editors who make you feel as though you have a safety net. I have a lot to learn, without a doubt. I'll always have a lot to learn. I depend on editors to help teach me things. And when I read the Wayne Shorter obituary in Jazz Times, which the piece that will live in infamy, written by someone calling herself Doctor, and I saw the switch from the Jazz Times I had known to this, I was really heartsick. I think that excellence is the goal no matter what else. Excellence always has to be editorial excellence, Literary excellence, reportorial excellence is what we should all strive for foremost. And the seeming disappearance of that from Jazz Times today is what, for me, spells the end of that publication. I wanted to note that Jazz Times isn't the only publication that's been dynamited by the the new ownership. I, I mean, there's been reporting on the situations at Outdoor Photographer and Imaging Resource and and other magazines that were in the Matavor portfolio that writers being stiffed, people, employees fired, publications going offline. It's a, a bleak media landscape, obviously, but really just a sad situation. It's clear that the Royals bought Matavor because they wanted Jazz Times. That was what was motivating the purchase. And it's the economics of the purchase seem dubious. It's not clear that how long they're going to be able to hang on to it because evidently it was financed with with, with debt or, or payments that have yet to be made. 
I, I wish we knew more that the lack of transparency of sort of what the vision was, what the intention was in buying a magazine that even though had gotten quite a bit thinner in recent years, was still public, publishing excellent work. And it's not at all clear a wheel needed to be reinvented at that point. So the, the lack of kind of a, a vision statement or a, a roadmap for where they wanted to take it has just, I think, exacerbates the sense of a train going off the tracks in this case. John, I in this mix of writers and voices at Jazz Times, you are unique. The turf that you chose to cover, your story ideas, which I doubt anyone else could have come up with, and your point of view on all of these subjects is really valuable. And you have not been treated well in this story about racial justice. I'm glad you brought that up. And this is an observation that I have. Mandover was screwing up with a lot of people's money prior to the takeover. And this has been going on for five years. Like before, as great as the editorial team was, as great as it looked, as great as the layout of those stories looked, for the past five years or so, it would take three calendar months to get a check. Now, when I was going through that, I was kind of like checking in with some of my other fellow writers and I would get, well, I haven't checked my checking account. Oh, I don't know. And I'm in, here I am needing the money. You know, I was freelancing primarily without having a full-time job. And was left thinking that I had this moral failure, weirdly enough, of needing money that was owed to me after I had done the work. After I had done the work, I felt like it was my failure for not having the financial cushion. What I do find interesting is the alarm that has been sounded throughout the jazz journalism regarding the payments when that alarm should have been sounded about McDover way before Rawl had entered the picture. But John, the situation you're describing is not unique to Madover. Is that the, I never knew. Is that how it's pronounced? This is rampant all over magazine and newspaper publishing. For years, I've been asked to sign contracts that stated that payment would occur within 90 days. The fight that you're describing to get paid is something that I have known my entire life. I did not experience it, interestingly, with Jazz Times. I almost never had a problem getting paid by them. But I have had to grovel and beg for my money for as long as I can remember, I hate it. It was in the fine print of the contract that I signed with this life I chose that as a lowly freelancer, I would have to do a lot of groveling, begging, threatening. So it's happening everywhere. And especially as the magazine publishing dies, which it's dying, I'm talking about the physical object, 
And these uh, most magazines these days, I would say, are on life support. This has been going on for a long time. I don't want to single out Jazz Times or its um, brethren as unique in that area. Well, it's not unique, per se. But the timing of it, like, if it's not unique, why are we talking about the payments now? Now that it's on the rules and when we weren't, it this it wasn't bubbling up before. Yeah, this is different because we've all basically been stiffed. Eventually in the past, we got our money. Now it's over a year and we haven't gotten our money and we're getting these almost insulting crumbs thrown our way, which in a way are worse than if we didn't get anything at all. Hmm, that's Things were dicey for quite a while. I, you're right, John. But I think then with the pandemic, things became so crazy. And I know I, I stopped writing for them. I, I, I told Mac I, I just couldn't do it because it had been so long since I'd been paid. And he was very, you know, understanding and nice. And I always felt like he was advocating for, for writers to get paid, but it was a, you know, a corporate coming from the, the the company. And it wasn't until, I mean, after about a year where they had paid, you know, going back many issues, but I was finally caught up. I said, okay, I'll, you know, um, I'm ready to start writing again. But yeah, it's the, the the pandemic was sort of an added, obviously, an added factor of chaos and and difficulty for in publishing or in everything. James, what you're saying is that the, the long form journalism, print journalism, is I think we all grew up with it being the you know in in, in many ways it was the um, golden ring for journalists, uh, you know, writing for for the Atlantic, the New Yorker, for cover story in downbeat or jazz times these were real things to 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 aim for and that era does seem you know it is in its twilight and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on can anything replace it what you know for for young writers when i talk to to younger writers interested in arts and culture journalism I always want to be encouraging and i i mean there's certainly i look at substack and and different forums i mean there's amazing things happening there but you know how many people can turn that into actually getting paid and what's it you know writing without an editor essentially which is <laughs> i don't want to do right so i'm wondering what your both of your thoughts on that sort of where where does longer form writing go J- jazz journalism go or music journalism or well luckily there are platforms such as Title. Evan has been very kind to both James and I in terms of not only giving us a platform to write long form, but actually, I can at least say for myself, assigning me long form articles in which I haven't even thought of pitching. And that's encouraging. That's encouraging. Even in the most dire situation, I never want to get into that position of thinking that everything is lost. You know, jazz science might make a comeback. It may not be next year. It may not be five years, but it might make a comeback. We've seen record labels in jazz make comebacks. Candid Records making a comeback. There's always going to be a resurgence. It may not come when we want it to, <laughs> but there's always going to be a resurgence. 
And I think new opportunities will continue to happen. I've been writing for Grammy.com. Bandcamp has an editorial platform with their site, Pitchfork. I think a lot of jazz journalists, particularly emerging as well as the ones who have been seasoned, will have to look outside of the quote-unquote traditional jazz ecosystem to find those opportunities. And in turn, will have to change the way they write about certain things, which they may have to get more into the person behind the music as opposed to talking a lot about the process. James Gavin has always been a great hero of mine, and he always talks about getting to the why. And we had the conversation last year, and it definitely shaped the way I think about how I write and thinking about my audience and getting to the why, as opposed to the sausage-making process. <laughs> Thanks, John. I feel the same way about you. You have written many pieces over the years that I have read, and I thought, damn, I could never have written that piece. And Andy, to get back to your question, though, excellent long-form journalism still lives on in places like The New Yorker and a handful of other magazines. It's not gone. You can get paid for it, but it's, it's, a, it's a vastly shrunken field. We can all write long, long pieces and post them somewhere on the internet and not get paid for them to our heart's content. But everything keeps moving faster and faster, and attention spans keep shrinking, and our phones have an ever-increasing grip on our consciousness. I was at uh, Smoke a few months back. This is a slight detour, but perhaps useful. I went to see Mary Stallings with Emmett Cohen at mm -hmm. Smoke in my neighborhood. I observed... More than one person, one couple in particular, a young couple who I guess thought it would be a nice idea to go out and see a show. They were unable to focus on the show for more than, and I counted, about 20 seconds at a time. And then I would see them start to fidget and back they went to their phone. This ray of light shining up at their faces and they were giggling and pointing things out on the phone and swiping on the phone. And there, there is not a damn thing that can be done about this. Yes, club owners can correct those people when they see it, but the club owners are struggling too. They're afraid to alienate customers and risk somebody storming out without paying their bill. So the luxurious kind of long-form journalism that we love has been somewhat left behind. Here again, I will always be grateful to Jazz Times for letting me do so much of it. 20 years ago, give or take, I did a piece on Patty Waters, the free jazz singer that, after having seen her at the Vision Festival downtown, the day after the performance, I wrote to Jazz Times and asked if I could do it, and I got an immediate yes. We're going to have to, and John, you're a lot better at this than I am in terms of finding new outlets to write. I need to steal some of your ideas because you are much more enterprising in this regard. I have my books to occupy me. 
Right now, I'm working. A British publisher asked me to do a book for their jazz series about Anito Day. So that's my big project of the moment. I don't know how you have been so creative and enterprising as to find so many outlets for your work. You have endless ideas for interesting stories. I don't I don't have endless ideas. I have the ideas that I have. So I'll say it one more time. God bless jazz times for what they gave us for all those years. Nothing lasts forever. Well, that's actually a really interesting point, James, in the sense that there's the big question of this amazing archive, right? Of all these past issues. And the vast majority, as far as I tell, is not available. It's either paywalled, which is, and I have a subscription and I can't get past the paywall on on some stuff that should be available. And that to me is sort of one of the big questions is there's decades of really important work and what's going to happen to that? Again, it would seem like monetizing that shouldn't be that difficult. I mean, even, you know, micro payments to to get in, I think people would be totally willing to do that to be able to go back and read some of the longer stories. So again, I wish there was some communication with that because I have no idea. I don't think anyone knows, or I have no idea if they've thought about what to do with this treasure trove they're 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 sitting on. I'm glad you brought I, that up because as we were talking earlier, I'm getting ready to move. And I have a lot of old issue of jazz science downbeat. Some issues of jazz is, which I think we forget to talk about in terms of yeah. the American trend journalism ecosystem in terms of magazines, jazz-wise. As I said earlier, I watch Porters and I'm like, oh my God, that can be me if I'm not careful of like getting too caught up in collecting, you know, making sure I have a space to keep a collection in an orderly fashion where it's not an eyesore. And at one time I was thinking, well, what do I do with these magazines? And to your point, Andrew, I was looking at not only the decades that I've collected of jazz science, but also reflecting on how many articles and reviews and what have you I have in those publications. What is going to happen with that history if they don't have a true custodian that's going to curate it? And right now, Looking at the hands, if they can't figure out how to write an, a proper obituary of Wayne Shorter, I don't have faith in them thinking on a curatorial level. I think they're really in a survivor mode. That history needs a home. That history deserves to be studied, to be reexamined, to be republished in a sense of which not only does it honor the work, it honors the people who did the work. It terrifies me of how much history is lost. Going back to one of the things that I tend to be focusing on is the redaction of redacted history. And when you just jetson and get rid of things, that's how certain things get lost. In certain periods, certain figures become footnotes because the retelling is skewed. I don't object to paywalls, 
they're annoying. We would all like to get everything for free, but publications need to generate income every possible way they can. And I don't know what Jazz Times is charging after the the initial complimentary two or three articles, I forget which. My fear, like yours, John, is that when Jazz Times folds for good, if it folds for good, but probably when it folds for good, will that whole site of material just vanish? Not vanish. It'll be at the library, but vanish from the internet in an accessible way. I have my own website. All my articles are up on it. I have scanned pages of my articles. So my articles are safe, but my articles are a teeny tiny part of the legacy of Jazz Times. I want your work to be available to me because in many cases, you wrote about things that hardly anybody else have written about or, or pondered. So I'm absolutely with you. Well, gentlemen, we should bring this to a close. It's been such a pleasure exploring this with both of you. So really, thank you for, for joining me. I look forward to reading both of you where and whenever you publish your next pieces. I'm Susan Brink for the Jazz Journalists Association. Thank you for listening to The Buzz, a podcast produced by the JJA. We release new episodes regularly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition, Big Vic is our theme music. Toodaloo. Toodaloo.